0: Well, this morning, I hope that uh, you will listen to the sermon and you will walk away from it rejoicing and praising God for His amazing grace. We just sang about that uh, right now Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Then we sang, My chains fell off, I've been set free. And I want you to see that all of that is true this morning. All of that is true. But there is so much more to the story than simply that we were saved, that our chains are gone, and we've been set free. And I hope that by the time we reach the end of the passage this morning, that you will be completely blown away. I believe that as we study the character of God, it is both humbling and it is amazing at the same time. So this morning we come to Ephesians chapter 1. And beginning with verse 5. But I want to go back to verse 3 so that we can see this section in its context. And hopefully you will know it by heart at this point. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. So I'm going to begin my sermon this morning with my conclusion. I've told you this before, that when I read a book, I often don't read the first page. I usually go to the end of the book and I read the conclusion to see if it's really what I want to read. Well, I want to read this one today. And so I'm going to start with my conclusion. And my conclusion is found in verse 6, and this is it. To the praise of the glory of His grace. God has done something in history that will result in praise to Him for all eternity. But in this verse, it is clear that we will be praising God for the glory of His grace. God's grace. Now, that's an attribute of God. And grace is often defined, if you say to a Christian who has studied the scripture, what is grace? They'll say that's God's undeserved favor. And that's a good definition of the word grace. The fact is that God has looked for and found the most undeserving individuals in all of creation and has chosen to show them such kindness and love that it is amazing grace. Paul calls it the glory of His grace. Later he says it is the riches of His grace. And then later he says it is the exceeding riches of His grace. It's as if there are words, it's as if there are words that are not big enough to describe the grace of God, the wonderful grace of God. So let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to a time when there was no time. Before time began. Go way back to a time when there was not a creation. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? It's enough to just make your mind go tilt. You know, how, do you, how do you think in those terms? Before there was time, before there was creation... Go back further before God created the angels, and God dwelt alone with himself. And by the way, God was completely satisfied with himself, and he was completely perfect. He did not need anything, and he did not need anyone. But apparently God wanted to create beings who would enjoy him forever. And worship him for who he is and for all that he has done. Now, I want to say this to you up front that God has always had all of his attributes. He didn't gain attributes later, he's always had all of his attributes at the same time. um, And uh, his purpose is to display his attributes. So we have some of God's attributes displayed for us here on earth and in the heavens. The power of God is seen in creation. God's wisdom is made manifest in creation. We looked at that in Proverbs a couple of weeks ago, that wisdom was beside him as the creation was made. That's his wisdom. And the heavens declare the glory of God. But there are certain attributes that cannot be demonstrated in creation alone. Love, for example, needs an object to love. Mercy requires someone who deserves punishment. And grace calls for someone who is undeserving. Grace is a wonderful attribute. It is God's favor given freely to those who do not deserve it. You cannot earn His grace You cannot attain it by good works. You cannot buy His grace with gold or silver or anything like it. And if you demand grace as a right, you can't have it. For it is the only attribute, it is only available to those who do not deserve it. Grace, God's undeserved favor. So if we go back to the beginningless beginning, where God, the Trinity, lives by himself without any created beings, how can grace ever be displayed? How can it be manifested? Grace by its very nature must be expressed. It must be displayed and it must be poured out upon someone who does not deserve it. For that is what grace is. God could not display his grace to himself because he is alone worthy. He is the only worthy one. He is worthy. But grace is poured out upon unworthy recipients, not upon one who is already worthy. So for grace to be demonstrated, there really had to be a created being. And so God did create an order of beings, and we call them angels. He made the angels. They were created before man. They were created before the heavens and the earth. They were there as and witnesses of the creation, and they were created perfectly, and they were created to worship God for who He is and for what He had done. And they lived in the presence of God, and they worshiped Him. But at some point, and we don't know exactly where it was, at some point, one of the angels decided that he wanted to be just like God. He wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be worshipped as God. Lucifer is his name, more commonly known today as Satan or the devil. And he was an angel. And he was one of God's angels in heaven. And he was able to persuade one third of the angelic beings to follow him in his mad attempt to be like God. And they were expelled from heaven. The devil fell from his exalted position. He fell out of favor with God. And he persuaded, as I say, a third of the angels to follow him in his rebellion. Now, for the first time in history, there were beings that did not deserve God's favor. If ever there were candidates for the grace of God, the angelic beings would be candidates, wouldn't they? They didn't deserve his favor, and grace is poured out upon those who do not deserve it. Surely, if anyone deserved God's grace, or qualified is a better way of saying it, it was the angels. Certainly, if God wanted to display his grace, he could have done so to the angels, but if you search the Bible from beginning to end, you will never find any mention of the word grace connected with angels. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews 2:16, "For indeed he that is God does not give aid to the angels." Although God is a God of grace, he did not use the fall of angels as an opportunity to display his grace the glories of His grace. So instead, God, to demonstrate the glories of His grace, God elected instead to show favor to another order of being. And so in time, God created human beings of whom it is written by the psalmist. And psalmist asks this question, what is man? He's asking God, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You have made him, you have made man a little lower Than the angels. And so we are a lower creation, if you will, a lower class than angels. And God made man perfectly, don't get me wrong. He made us without sin. But it wasn't long before that fallen angel, Lucifer, deceived Eve, and Adam took the forbidden fruit and plunged the whole human race into sin, and plunged the whole world into sin. Man began with a relationship with God. And and now it was over. The second class of beings became second class citizens of a world that was now in ruin. And the ruin caused by our sin extended to the entire creation. The animal kingdom was affected. The natural world was affected. Thorns and thistles would now grow and make planting and harvesting difficult. Sorrow and pain would accompany childbirth. Man would work by the sweat of his brow. Not that work was wrong, but it was hard work by the sweat of his brow. And even now, all of creation, the scripture says, groans under the effect of the ruin caused by the fall of man. And now something entered into creation that had never been there before. And that was death. And death has reigned ever since Adam. Many of you have experienced the death of a loved one and know the sorrow, and know the anguish that it causes, that that sin has caused you personally. And we are all headed to that appointed day where we will meet death, and our last breath will be taken on earth. Death has reigned ever since Adam. But the effect of sin was not just to the creation itself, but it ruined the relationship Adam had with God. Immediately, Adam experienced spiritual death. Spiritual death is when man is separated in his relationship from God. It means that the relationship with God was ruined. He was separated from God and separated from God's favor. And all of Adam's children, right down to the present day, are born dead in their trespasses and sins. We are born separated from God. And so, we are part of the problem. And as we survey the ruins left by sin, you are part of the ruin, and I am part of the ruin. And this is the dilemma with which God was faced. And as we read through the first book of the Bible, the first chapters read like this. First, there was a beautiful creation, perfect in every way, the handiwork of God. And then Satan entered in, tempted our parents, they fell into sin, brought death to all men, for all have sinned. And if you follow the pattern in the Old Testament, particularly the first five chapters of the book of Genesis, everyone who lives dies. They live, they go on, they die. They live, they go on, they die. And that death has continued to 2013. We are born out of favor with God. And so we have to ask the question again, if God is a God of grace... And he wants to demonstrate that amazing grace, would it not be like God to bypass that higher order of being, the angels, and instead demonstrate how rich, how deep, how far extending his grace is by actually reaching out to a lower order of creation? Wouldn't it be like him to bypass that higher order and reach down even further, down to the depths of our sin and display his grace to undeserving sinners of the lowest order? God summarizes the condition of the world in uh, chapter 5 of Genesis, and it's found in Noah's day, and he says that every imagination of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. And it's a, it's a terrible indictment against human beings every imagination of the thoughts of our heart only evil continually and so God chose to destroy all of mankind with a flood but the very first time in the Bible we come across one word that will for all time and for eternity change human history in Genesis 6 verse 1 we read this but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord God had chosen to demonstrate His attribute, uh, this attribute of his to one man and to, to his family in the midst of an entire world of sinners, including Noah himself. And by his divine election, God chose Noah and his family to save out of the destruction that came on the rest of the world. Grace. That's what it is. Grace is a wonderful attribute of God. It is God's favor given freely to those who do not deserve it. Now, it's true that if you look at the passage in Genesis, no one deserved his grace. Why did God choose Noah? Just because he chose Noah. And determined to show him grace. Grace. God's grace is very personal. His grace provided a way of escape not only for Noah but for anyone else who would believe the message of deliverance that Noah preached. And the entire world perished in the flood, not because there was no way of escape for them, but because they chose not to believe God. That's the beginning of a glimpse of God's grace. But in Ephesians 1, we read about His grace to you, and the glory of His grace, and the riches of His grace, and the exceeding riches of His grace. So if the saving of a boatload of men, women, animals is deter- defined by one word, grace, how can we illustrate the exceeding riches of his grace? That's what Paul attempts to do here in Ephesians chapter 1. God bypassed the angels and instead he chose to shower his grace upon you. You. And me. This is his opportunity to manifest or to demonstrate the exceeding riches of his grace, and he does. You know, if you look at it, God could have destroyed us all. If we got what we deserved, we would all end up in hell. That's what we deserved. And that's where we were heading. And Paul bursts out in a song of praise to God at the beginning of this section, and he says... Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Amazing grace. But if God wanted to show grace to hell-deserving sinners, it would mean that someone perfect and without sin would have to take our place because the wages of sin is death and we are all sinners. We deserve death. We deserve hell. Blood would have to be shed because the Bible says without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. Our death penalty would have to be paid. and The question is really this, would God be willing to do that? Take God out of the picture for a moment. If it was you and I was the only sinner and you were not a sinner, would you be willing to do that for me? Would I be willing to do that for you? But God is perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. We are the ones who offended him. Is he willing to do that? Of course, God could have searched the entire world for a perfect and holy sacrifice, but there was none. And so the only way to save sinners would be for God to become a man and take our place and pay for our sins with his own blood. Would God be willing to leave the splendors of heaven to come into this sinful world, this ruined world, and take my place? Is His grace that great? Well, 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, for your sakes He became poor, that you through His poverty might be made rich. Would He do that for me? He did that for me. Think about your life. You were born separated from God. But then as you grew, you chose to sin. And your sins, if you think about your sins in your life, just think back, reflect a little bit about your own life here. Your sins are not buried very deep in your heart. They're, they're They're just under the surface. You know who you are. You know what you've done. You understand your sin. Even a little child starts out with a clenched fist and a scream. Okay? I've seen seven of them come out that way. And as we grew, we all learned to lie and to cheat and to steal and to be sneaky. We put down others and we exalted ourselves. We sought pleasures for ourselves we cheated on tests we wanted what others had we coveted we took we lusted and we took and we enjoyed the pleasures of sin none of us were righteous not even one none of us sought after God not even one and we were content to do our own thing to go our own way and to live our own life why should God even care for us that's who we were Add to that a description um, of one of many descriptions in the Scripture about our sin. And Paul says this in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, Will inherit the kingdom of God. And I remember a time when I was about 20 years old, and I read that passage. I'm sure I'd read it before, but I read that passage and it struck me between the eyes. And so I had to go back to it and read it again to make sure I wasn't missing something. And then I read it again. And I I remember asking myself, How can I be saved? How can I be saved? I clearly saw myself as a sinner. I've told you my testimony before, some of you at least. I remember one day going into a church building. It was on an Easter weekend. And I came into the church building believing that if anyone deserved to be in heaven, it was me. God would be lucky to get me. And I remember distinctly thinking that as I walked into the church building that day. And within sight of one hour of preaching, I walked out of that church building believing that even God couldn't save me. Conviction of sin. And I saw myself in a passage just like this. And I saw myself as a sinner and I thought even God can't save me. But I did not know the grace of God. I did not understand the exceeding riches of His grace. Because the scripture says where sin abounded, grace much more abounded. Or abounded much more. In 1 Corinthians 6.11 it says this, And such were some of you. I know you. I know where you've been. I know where you've come from. And I say, and such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, and by the spirit of our God, praise God, that His grace has reached down to you and has reached down to me. But wait, there's more. Don't you like that when you go to an infomercial? And they, they say, oh, and for only 1999, you get this. But wait, there's more. And you get two. Well, with God's grace, that but wait, there's more, never ends. And it just keeps going and going and going. Better than the Energizer Bunny. It's not just that He died in our place and He took sin's penalty. It's not just that my chains are gone and I've been set free. God's grace is so great that He would not be satisfied to simply save your soul. That's simply not good enough for God. If God is a God of grace, then He must display His grace for all to see. It must be eternal. His grace must be without measure. His grace has to reach the lowest of the low. And it has to be without limit. For it is the grace of God. And that's the way God is. As to the measure of God's grace, Paul praises God in the first sentence of of his hymn of praise here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Nothing excluded. Nothing held back. As to the limit, there is no limit to God's divine favor to us. We know this is true because God has already saved the lowest of the low. The worst sinner that ever lived on earth, God has already saved him. How do I know that? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Paul is writing and he says, Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. So Paul says, look, he's already saved the worst. Do you think he's going to have trouble saving the second worst, the third worst, the fourth worst? No. However, for this reason, Paul says, I obtain mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show, all the, uh, might show all longsuffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. And so Paul's salvation was a pattern demonstrating that God's grace has no limit. No limit. You may say, but you don't know what I have done I really don't need to know what you have done because I know what Jesus Christ has done and Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and paid for your sins in full and he is offering you free and full salvation that's his grace no matter what you've done his grace is greater than all your sins and he has shown limitless grace to you but wait there's more God's grace is without measure. He has, we already read this, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And we know that God's grace is eternal because it says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That's eternity past. And His grace is eternal the other way too. For it says we will be holy and without blame before Him in love. That's eternity future. And so His grace is eternal. He planned it out before the world began. He planned on saving you before you, were ever, you ever took your first breath, before there was ever a creation at all. But wait, there's more. God's grace is not satisfied with simply saving your soul and leaving us on planet Earth uh, forever as forgiven people. He declares us here and now to be holy and without blame. Are you kidding me? Because I know that I am not holy, and I know that I am to be blamed. So I don't get that. What does that mean? He is declaring you, as a believer, to be holy and without blame. And in God's eyes, that's exactly where you are. He is talking here. We call this our position in Christ. And as far as your position in Christ is concerned, you are holy, you are perfect, you are complete in Him. There's nothing more to add. God has already done it all. You are holy. That's your position. It's exalted, it's high as the heavens are. And you say, Yeah, but I don't live that way. And that's your practice. And so the same Bible that says you are holy says, Be holy. And so that Bible that says be holy, you are holy, says that's your position in Christ. Perfect. The be holy part is, this is your practice. Now as you live on earth, conform your practice to the position you already have in Christ. Be holy. But God is declaring us here and now to be holy and without blame. The moment He saved you, He gave you the righteousness of God in Christ. Is Christ holy? Oh, yes, He is. So are you because you are in Christ. Is Christ blameless? Yes, He is. And so are you because you are in Christ. Can anyone bring a charge against God's elect? Oh, there will be people who try. Satan himself is called an accuser of the brethren. And he stands there trying to say, well, look at him, look at her, look at what he did, look at what she did. And we become defeated. But Satan is an accuser of the brethren. And Jesus Christ is our advocate there in the presence of the Father. And he points to his hands and he points to his feet and shows the wounds that he suffered for you. And the, and the, uh, the piercing in his side and says, my blood is sufficient. I've paid for their sins in full. No one can uh, ch- um, bring a charge that sticks against God's elect. That's right. It's God who justified you. Now, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's a very strong look at our position in Christ. In chapters 4, 5, and 6, we'll look at our practice when we get there but for now let's just rejoice in our position in Christ now there are two words at the end of verse four it says in love and Bible students debate and wrestle with these words and they wonder whether in love modifies the phrase before or it modifies the phrase after I don't know but I do know this I know what it means to be in love do you you know what it means to be in love? I am in love with my wife. From the moment I saw her, I knew she was the woman for me. Love at first sight, they call it. Okay? And it hasn't changed. Well, it's grown. I mean, we've, we've grown. It's developed. But I love her more. And remarkably, she loves me. She knows what it is to be in love. That's why she's away right now. The reason that I do things for her is because I'm in love with her. And the reason she treats me so well is because she's in love with me. And I do know this, that God is love. And we love him because he first loved us. And everything he is doing is because of his great love for us. And He demonstrated His love for us by sending His Son to the cross to take our punishment on the tree. And God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I know this, that God is love and we love Him because He first loved us. And I know that in response to His love, I now love Him. He chose us in love. He has a grand purpose for us because He loves us. He made us holy and will be without blame before Him because He loves us. And in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. You cannot divorce love from this equation in Ephesians chapter 1. He is motivated by love uh, for us. Now, you can borrow, I want to borrow the words from Jeremiah 31.3. It says, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. God loves you individually. God shows grace to you personally. And God chose you independently. And it is forever. But wait, there's more. Verse 5 says this, Having predestined us to adoption as sons... By Jesus Christ to Himself. If you think God's grace is amazing, then this takes you to a complete new level here. Remember, God's grace is without limits. God's grace includes His purpose in restoring a relationship back to Himself with you. God um, could have said, All right, fine, I'll make you my subjects. And honestly, that would have been great. That would have been grace. But that wasn't enough. He could have said, All right, I'll allow you to be my friend. In fact, I'll even allow you to be my BFF. I don't think God uses Facebook. (laughs) But that would be too small of a favor. No, God would not be satisfied. His grace would demand so much more. And so God determined before the foundation of the world that you would be His children, His Son. That's amazing grace. Last week we looked at election. God chose you. God chose you before the foundation of the world. Today we're looking at a term called predestination. He predestined you. What does that mean? It means that He marked out beforehand your destiny. Even though he knew we would fall into sin and be sinners by nature, and he knew that we would, be, we would rebel against him and be sinners by practice, yet God's grace is so great that he marked out your destiny beforehand as a son. And God's immeasurable grace would not be satisfied unless you were as close to him as his son. And God's immeasurable grace... We who were rebels have been brought into a family. Not just any family. We have been brought into God's family. We who were enemies have been made his sons. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. He would, his grace would have it no other way. We were adopted. I think Paul borrows the idea of adoption from um, Roman law, and in order to adopt a child under Roman law, one would have to stand before the Roman magistrates, and the Roman magistrates would oversee the adoption process. Adoption, as you well know, is taking a child who was born to someone else into your own family with the purpose of treating that child as your own. Someone has written this, the adopted sons enjoyed the same privileges as natural born sons. According to Roman law, the adopted person lost all rights in his old family and gained all the rights of a legitimate son in his new family. We got or he got a new father and he became the heir Of his new father's estate. He was inalienably co heir with the other sons in the family. In law, the old life was completely wiped out. All of his debts were canceled, and he was absolutely the son of his new father. Now, think about God's grace and what it has accomplished for you. You have been removed from your old family, Satan was your father. Adam was your father, and all the things that you inherited from Adam were yours. Sin, the sin nature, and the consequences of sin, which is death. Well, Satan is no longer your father. All the sin and guilt associated with being associated with that family (coughs) is now gone. Your debt has been canceled, and you have been set free. God has predestined you to adoption as sons. How? By Jesus Christ. By what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that is what has gained you um, sonship. By Jesus Christ paying for your debt in full, brought you into the family of God. Now, the interesting thing is that this adoption is a little different than adoption that we're used to. In adoption that we're used to here, um, oftentimes it's a baby or a, a young child that is brought into a family. And that young child certainly is part of the family, but may not come into all the rights and the privileges and the full benefit of that family until they become an adult, um, until they become 18. It's not true here. When God brought us into sonship, he brought us into a relationship with him that guarantees, if you will, all of the rights, all of the privileges of an adult son. Everything that he has to offer has given to us at the moment we are saved, we are adopted. You're in a family, uh, and you've become an heir of God. Think about that. What does God own? If you were brought into uh, another family, adopted into another family, you say... Well, if I had a choice, uh, you know, maybe Bill Gates or something like that, you know, I'd get at least the riches or, you know, maybe some shares in Microsoft or something like that, but even that is going to pale in the significance to what God has offered you. What does God own? Everything. Everything is His. The heavens, the earth, everything belongs to Him, and you are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You're in a family from which you can never be lost, never be exchanged, never kicked out, never disowned, never abandoned, never kidnapped, or any such thing. Oh, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches even me. But wait, there's more. God wanted you so close to himself that he predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. You received the spirit of adoption, uh, Paul says in Romans, by which you call him Abba, Father. Can you imagine that? I was a rebel. I was a sinner. I was an enemy of God. And now I call God Daddy, Papa, Abba. That's what it means, Abba. It's 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 like a child's first words, Abba. I think all of my children said Dada first. I made sure that any time I heard anything that sounded somewhat dissimilar to that, I would, you know, and then they would, they would say dada first. It's like the first word, the natural inclination of a child, dada, dada. I know mama too, they say that, but here in context, it's dada. Abba, Father. The angels don't call God Father. Those whom he predestined to call him Abba, Father, do. Do you realize how far away from God you were? And how close he has brought you? That is amazing grace. He did not give aid to angels, but he adopted you as sons. Why did he do that? Why did God do that? It says in this same passage, according to the good pleasure of his will, just because it pleased him. It was the delight of his heart to do this for His children. This plan from eternity past was made possible in time by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it pleased the Father to bruise Him that He might bring many sons to glory. And we come back to the conclusion that we started with at the beginning. It pleased the Father to do this for us because it was according to the good pleasure of His will to the praise of the glory of His grace. In doing this for us, his enemies, bypassing the fallen angels and choosing us before the foundation of the world, um, doing this to a lower level of being, marking us out beforehand to be sons. God's grace is magnified for all creation to see. No wonder the angels in heaven are shouting the praise of God every time someone trusts the Lord as their Savior and is born again into the family of God. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Finally, for this morning, it is His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. And so, as God contemplated what He would do before He created man, before He created the heavens, before He created the earth, before He created the angels, this was in His mind. You were in His mind. I was in His mind. As he looked down at the quarters of time and he could demonstrate the wonders of his grace to you and make you an object of his grace, he has made you accepted in the beloved. You are accepted because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. And When God looks at what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you, he says he did that for Matt Clark. He did that for Mary Rodriguez. He did that for David. He did that for Christina. He, he did that for all of us. And because of what Jesus Christ did for you, you are accepted in the Beloved. We are the recipients of His grace. Jesus Christ, the Beloved One, is the channel of God's grace. And by displaying God's grace to such unworthy sinners, His grace is magnified and He is glorified. Let's worship Him. Um, We'll pray and then we'll have a closing hymn. Father, we thank you so much that we can come this morning and call you Abba, Father, to think that you took, uh, you bypassed the angels and uh, you showed amazing grace to us, that we are the recipients of your grace. Lord, it magnifies the glory of your grace. We thank you so much for the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered and bled and died and rose again. We thank you that he is seated at the right hand of God and ever intercedes for us. We thank you, Father, for the fact that we, shall, that we shall be like your Son. That's what you have in store for us. Lord, thank you for the position that we have in Christ, and we pray that as we live day by day, our, position, our, our practice might reflect that position that we have in you. We pray, Lord, that we might rejoice and give you glory this week as we think about your amazing grace.